Hello there, friends of documentaries, otherwise known as the Docalos. Welcome to the Documenteers Podcast, the universe's best and most favorite podcast devoted to documentary films. I am Bob Sham, and each week, myself and a special companion discuss judge and goof on a different doc each week. And this week, Angela and I keep on with some docs that came out this year. We're going to be doing a lot of current stuff, more current stuff as we go into the new year. And we return to director Aaron Lee Carr. For another odd angle on a true crime tale. But is it a crime? Ask the state of Massachusetts. We watched the two-part docuseries, I Love You, Now Die. It's uh, by HBO, or for HBO. For series episodes, we watch or record after each part, so you actually hear us go up and down emotionally in this dramatic roller coaster of a story. Kind of makes it more fun to hear, but I think anyway. But that's in a few minutes. Next week... It's the week of Thanksgiving, one of my favorite weeks of the year, and Johnny celebrates with me to discuss a lauded documentary that dropped also this year about a once-empty factory in Dayton, Ohio, that has sparked and reignited hope because a Chinese company has moved in and they are hiring. But some things might be too good to be true. Turns out the Chinese position on unions might surprise you. Johnny and I discuss Julia Reichert and Stephen Bognar's American Factory. I think it's on Netflix. Uh, it's not specifically a Thanksgiving documentary, but Thanksgiving is featured in this doc. So, so get your cranberry sauce ready. I actually like the canned jelly kind that makes the fart sound when it comes out. And join us for all that shit next week on this damn podcast. Some bits and pieces briefly played in this episode are quick clips of Boys to Men singing a sad, sad classic. Leah Michelle from Glee singing Don't Rain on My Parade, which is from Funny Lady or Funny Girl or some shit. That's what I was told anyway. And we hear a bit of that We Love You, Conrad, from Bye Bye Birdie. I actually know that one. I'm not a musical guy, but I, I confess I do like Bye Bye Birdie. They all correlate contextually to what we're going to discuss in this episode. And even our outro song, Say Yes to Heaven by Lana Del Rey, kind of correlates as well. But it's more of the DJ selection on that one. And I'm the DJ. I think Say Yes to Heaven is a demo track that got leaked, I believe. Not officially released on any of Lana's albums. I actually like Lana Del Rey, um, the most underrated SNL performer. The truth is that so many mediocre two great bands have all sounded like shit on SNL stage. There's just something about it. It almost isn't worth it to have musical acts on that show anymore. They literally almost always sound like fucking shit. But uh, but we got to hate on Lana Del Rey. Actually, she's wildly popular. Documenteerspodcast.com for more on us and how to find and email us. We need Apple podcast reviews, especially good written reviews. Apple runs the game, or at least not the total game, but... Is still very prominent, so a lot of a lot of five stars and a lot of written reviews on there will up the profile and help get word around to this show. Our reviews are very low considering how many people listen to us, and the show is growing very consistently. And I've gotten a lot of cool folks saying kind things a lot more lately. Tell the world and give us five stars and a review if you don't mind, if you have not done so already. Uh, I'm down with good reviews anywhere, but some some applications don't make it seem that obvious how to give a review if you do at all. But you do that, and I will love you forever. I already love you. And, uh, oh, March of next year, I want to devote that month to 
listener requests. So if you have sent me a listener request in the last year, send it again, whether it be through email or Instagram, just send it. And uh, here's my listener request. This is my movie. I get a lot now and I've done things to my brain over the years. So I might need to get, be told again. We've actually gotten so many requests now and the way we do this show, it's recorded months in advance. So it's kind of odd how it times out, but that's just how I do it to be able to do this, you know, but give us your requests again. Uh, March has five Mondays and we also take requests for short documentaries for our shorties. Our shorties are often just dumb internet clips. So long it's not some acted thing and it's entertaining, we'll probably do it. Uh, but for short regular documentaries, we recommend 25 minutes and less is what we consider a good shorty on this show. So Send in your request for March. I'll be asking about it all the way up till then. Uh, limited spots, obviously, but if we don't get to yours in March, maybe we'll get to yours later in the year or whenever's. So many documentaries to talk about. I believe that is all. We will now go into the hole, the gaping maw of I Love You, Now Die by Aaron Lee Carr. Oh, I got a contacted by uh, someone who used to spend time in Unimclaw, Washington. Uh, we, Akil and I discussed Zoo. And Unimclaw is where the horse fucker got horse fucked to death. Apparently, I, <laughs> the listener wrote, and he said, there's a welcome to Unimclaw sign. And there's a, a par- at some point in, this, in the town, and there's a fucking statue of a horse right by it. The director really missed that. That key, key thing. You can't make that shit up. The town of horsefuck. Unimclaw. <laughs> okay, I'm rambling. Uh, keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Documenteers, that's us. Yeah. There's, there's no need for me to introduce it because I do that already before every episode. Yeah. But we're back. We're here to do. We didn't know this was a series. No. Until we sat down to start to watch it. It's a two-part series. Both episodes a little over an hour. And of course, when we do series, we got to sit down. We got to pre-record and then talk about it after each part. And even though this is like two hours, 20 minutes total. It's kind of fun to do series. Yeah. So we're going to do it like this. We haven't watched it yet. We're discussing from last summer, Aaron Lee Carr, who we already did a movie of hers. I think our second one, I think, was Mommy Dead and Dearest. Second one that you and I specifically yeah, did. Yeah, that we did together. We like that one. We love that story. I gave it a five. 
I can't remember what I gave it. I think you didn't give it a five, and I was a little mad. And if we had that new rule where you could change someone else's score, I would have done it. That's not a rule. What are you talking about? I mean, you can give it more so the person still gets 10, or the, so oh. the documentary still gets 10. Yeah, but you're raising your own. You're not changing mine. But you can No, you're cancel. changing the overall. You can fuck someone else up. I mean, it's a strategic move, but it's too late now. Yeah. We should retroactively rewrite things. I've been thinking about it, but I never have time. We are discussing the film, <laughs> I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. And let me tell you, have you heard about this story? Yes. I remember when it happened. It was pretty big news when it first went down. I actually think I only heard about it through a podcast. I don't remember actually watching any news footage about it. But well, I remember well, people well, listening happened? to people talk about it. I don't know the relationship, what it was between the boy and the girl, but... For some reason, this boy and girl had a relationship where he was turning to her when he was, I believe, depressed or he was being bullied or something. And she basically bullied him more and told him to kill himself over a text. That is my understanding. And that he did. And so then it became a, is she to be held responsible for this young man having taken his life? I think they were in a relationship. I thought it was like one-sided or something. Maybe uh, they were boyfriend-girlfriend. We'll find the out. The boy was particularly depressive, as I understand it. And as I understand it, they were boyfriend and girlfriend. Okay. And she talked him, or as alleged to have talked him into killing himself. I actually don't know if this trial has been resolved or whatever. I, I, I remember hearing about it when a lot of it was going down. I remember hearing about this documentary dropping, but I don't know if there's a result to this. Which actually makes it more interesting on I my part. I think there might be. How about those eyebrows, though, huh? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You haven't seen what this girl looks like or anything? I, she looked like blonde. I didn't really get a good visual on her eyebrows. But the photo I just saw of her was when she was incarcerated, so. Yeah, the images. She's, she, has, she looks very striking. Like her demeanor and everything. I don't know. Well, we, look. We haven't watched the movie yet, yeah. obviously. I'm excited. Our second Aaron Lee Carr feature. And we actually might get to a third before too long. Oh, yeah. Within the next three months here. But let's go watch this shit. All right. You ready? Yes. You, are you sure? I don't know. And you're going to know what I'm talking about, the fucking eyebrows. They're going to be I'm so ready. hot. I'm ready for the eyebrows. You're probably going to be like, I'm putting uh, Michelle Carter in my top five, if you know what I mean. <laughs> When you see these eyebrows. Okay. And that amazing expression that she always carries on her face. <laughs> Here we go. I love you. Now die the Commonwealth versus Michelle Kata, Mr. Kata. I told you. The eyebrows? Yeah, I told her about the, that look. She'll steal your heart. Oh, man. She'll steal your heart with that face. She looks the least normal in the courtroom. There's plenty yeah. of older pictures of her where she's like... Totally normal. Like, she seems like a nice, pretty young teenager, you know? In the courtroom, she seems very detached. Yeah. There's a part where 
media person from Esquire describes her when she first comes to the courthouse in like a pretrial and how she just looks so put together like she knew she was going to get fo- I can't say the word photographed like she knew she was going to get photographed and it's true it's like she knows everyone's watching her 100% of the time but there's still like some crazy behind her eyes I don't know after watching this first part if it's just she's genuinely messed up in the head or if she's a sociopath. Like, I don't know right now. You know, usually I'm quick to drop the sociopath label on people, but I honestly, I, I well, we need to see the second part. I don't know if we'll get much more answers with their psychological breakdown, but but I'm not, I don't feel as rushed to call her a sociopath. No, I don't either. Because it seems like there's something that she's also missing in her life, similar to the alleged victim, I guess you could say. I think we started to see that towards the end. So this first half is called the prosecution. So it really is the prosecution's side. Why they think it is her fault that Conrad Roy took his life. They were in a relate. They met in some trip. Yeah. Up to Papaw's cabin. Her grandparents and his grandparents both belong to the same country club in Florida. Okay. And they met there. Yeah. There's so many people from Massachusetts and Florida. It's unreal. There is a lot. I It made me laugh a little bit when I, they said Florida. I'm pretty sure that people in New England think Florida is like a level of heaven. Like, <laughs> like that's where they need to go to. Yeah. I got a lot of relatives from Massachusetts that are in Florida is what I'm trying to say. And they hang out with other people from Massachusetts and Florida. I love these accents in this in this fucking movie. I know. Miss Carter. It is 5.51 on October 2nd. We're talking to Michelle Carter. Taunton. The city of Taunton, Massachusetts, was settled by English Puritans in 1637, and the city is the county seat of Bristol County. Taunton is located in the center of southeastern Massachusetts, and it is intersected by a network of major highways, making the area easily accessible from Boston, Providence, Rhode Island, and Cape Cod. Okay, what's up? His mom says they only actually met each other. Like, they were only physically in each other's presence, like, four or five times. Yeah, in the span of five. They lived an hour apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived in Mattapoiset. Right? I spelled it phonetically Mattaposif. Mattapoiset. Mattaposif. 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 Matapoisit. Mataposa, bro. Sure. Matapoisit. But he actually was from Fairhaven and she was from Plainville or Plainview. So I don't really know where Mataposit comes in. I think that's maybe where his truck was found. Yeah, it's like an hour away. But right? I think that's where his truck was found. Yeah, Plainville. That's not where he lived. Right. I don't know. There there was a whole big thing about Fairhaven right after that. I wrote Fairhaven real big, like Conrad was missing. She's from Fairhaven. Okay, we'll get to the part in my notes where I think I know where she's from. I didn't it's even somewhere take, else. I didn't even take notes, but somehow I got this. It took about 16 minutes to see someone wearing a Red Sox hat. They fell in love in 2012, and they had a relationship for two years. Yeah, or like the a modern, a very modern relationship where it's mostly online and text. His mom didn't even realize that they were boyfriend, girlfriend. She knew he texted her all the time, but because she never saw her, they didn't visit each other and it's not like they couldn't he was 18 and had his grandpa's truck that he drove around she was 17 or 18 yeah and 
I'm sure had access to a vehicle. It's only an hour away. If you're a teenager and you are in love with someone who's one hour away, don't you think you visit them on the weekend? Sure. I was, I mean, when I was a teenager, I was driving to Nashville by myself on the weekends and shit, you know, it was, and it was like an hour away from where I grew up. Yeah. Like it, it was not that big of a deal. Didn't seem like much of a thing so long as I got home at a reasonable time, you know? I think if he'd said, hey, I'm going to go visit my friend or my girlfriend, I think his family would have been happy about oh. it. They seemed to really like her because yeah. she seemed nice. She was friendly with his sister a little bit too, which gets weird and fucked up, but she was friendly with his sister as well. So like she knew his family a yeah. little from those visits. And what, what is his name? Conrad Roy the Third. Conrad Roy Three. His dad is Conrad Roy Jr. and they call him Co. Yeah. We meet his grandpa as well. He's Conrad Sr. Rockin' a rascal. He was breaking my heart a little bit. We've got pictures of him, even with a little shit, that uh, he was there. I mean, you know, not really knowing what to do or how to do it, but he was there. And it's some, I've had some great memories of that. <laughs> some real great memories. <laughs> I'm sorry. Conrad has... A, a serious depressive issues like at some point something changed to him we get a lot of people to talking about both of these i mean they're kids basically when all this is going down they're technically conrad was 18 did it clarify if michelle no. was 18 no because the police go and talk to her it is 5 51 on october 2nd we're talking to michelle Carter at king philip high school um michelle the reason why we came out here is we were looking into conrad's unfortunate passing at some point not my first question was is she 18 because that that's problem that's an issue right there they went and talked to her at school and they got her they had a warrant for her phone they didn't say whether or not there was an adult present when the cops were talking to her i'm sure there was at least a school official but they didn't question her more than did you talk to him and then have her unlock her phone and then they took her phone when i was in high school i had the school cop dragged me into an office and asked me questions about a relative who had a warrant out for their arrest. I wonder who. Eh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just didn't want to be involved. My attitude was I didn't want to be involved. I sure. kind of knew where he was, but I just didn't fucking care. Right. And I don't have that much love for police, especially at that time. I was like, no, I don't care. Why? And then I went home and I told my grandma and she was like, what the fuck? And she, because you can't just you can't just do that. I was underage. I was like 16, 17 years old. Yeah. And she like, she flipped her shit in the school. I like, would too. The school's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Boy, my grandma, when she gets pissed back in those days. I man. wish I could have seen her once like that. You know, also in my days during those days, if I wanted to holler at a female, mm -hmm. slide into those AOL chat rooms. <laughs> Where it gets real hot. And then you know what I'd do? And then eventually I'd meet up with them and then make out for five hours till your face is sore and you're really blue balled because you don't really know what you're doing and your penis is sore because it's just been rubbing against your pant thigh. Mm -hmm. And you're scared that their parents are going to come down into the basement at some point. Again, your mouth hurts because it's sore. <laughs> Only when you're a teenager will you make out for five fucking hours. <laughs> 
like if somebody told me that I had to make out with you for 500 hours straight, I'd be like, no. That's like 500. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I think most people would say no. <laughs> but even like five hours, like how much money are you going to give me? Like, I love you so much. I don't want to make out with you for Three five minutes hours. is a long time. <laughs> yeah. That's a little too long. I mean, making out's fun sometimes, but this is these are young people's games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're we the don't most, have time for that. <laughs> they're the most excited about it. Let them do it for hours and hours. But the whole point is, they weren't even doing things like that. They weren't seeing each other. They were just texting all the time. But they loved each other. You could tell. They loved each other. They said they loved each other. There's a lot of text on screen in this obviously because they are wanting to show Aaron Lee Carr's wanting us to see the text messages as they were written. Yeah. I think that's really effective. We tried to watch another documentary once with a lot of text messages in it that was was awful because it was like typewriting it out. But this was just difficult and it took a long time. But this was very effective. And I think there's Something really powerful about seeing it in writing with no one reading it. And in particular, these texts are like, they don't look like your typical texts. Basically, Conrad's like, I feel like I'm going to kill myself. And she's like, you should do it. You should try it. You should drink bleach. She's given all these suggestions. And in between her suggestions is her being like, I love you. I love you. You're the greatest. I wish you were here holding my hand. Make it out for four hours. I wish you were here. Now, I didn't know when we turned this on how Conrad died. And it's very disturbing, I think, because basically she was like, you should do it right now. And he said, I don't know how to get away from them. I'm assuming his family. Yes. And she said, tell them you need to go to the store or something. And he got in his grandpa's truck and he drove to the back parking lot of a Kmart And he stayed on the phone with her for, I think it said 47 minutes, where he was, they were talking about him killing himself. She was trying to convince him to do it. He started with the carbon monoxide, and then at a point he got scared and got out of the truck. And he called her when he got out of the truck and and said, you know, I'm scared, I don't want to do this. And she was like, get the fuck back into the truck. Yeah, she he was like, try not to. And she was like, get into the truck. And that's a... I'm interested to see more about the defense on this because that's a phone call. Like, I don't know how we know what words they said in those moments, but there's a part where they read a statement that she made shortly after. So I think she may have told on herself at some point. Kmart released a statement saying, we're having a hard enough time. Please don't kill yourselves in our parking lot. (laughs) We don't even have a Kmart here anymore. They're gone now. They're all gone. Are they all gone? I think so. How do I say goodbye? Goodbye, Kmart. The initial defense is that there's no technical law in Massachusetts that says someone is guilty by saying, hey, you should go kill yourself. Mm -hmm. That's their initial defense. And technically, they could be correct. There is some question about it. It's she was charged when they took her phone and they charge and they eventually charged her. It was what was it called? Like causing some kind of issue disturbance or some shit like that was it was something about wrongful like manipulation coercion wanton and reckless conduct then leading to 
And so they were trying to get her, I believe, for manslaughter. Basically, what we see in this one mostly is the defense arguing that and then the prosecution saying, no, here's all the reasons why this is a legit case. Right. The prosecutor or the defense is initially starting off with like a a rule of the letter. Mm -hmm. And they do something that actually I think is very smart. I don't know how this ends. I suspect a manslaughter charge comes down. That's my guess. But they opt for a bench trial, meaning to just straight judge interpretation of the law and decision without a jury, mm-hmm. which seems smart. But let me tell you, if I were a Massachusetts lawyer, I would crush it because you know what I'd do? I would be a defend a defender and all my clients come in wearing Patriots jerseys, <laughs> Red Sox hats, periodically, randomly throughout the trial yell things like, how about those pats or go socks? Aaron Hernandez was innocent, things like mm-hmm. that. And no jury in Massachusetts is going to prosecute that person. Mm. They're, they're, there's no way they're going to prosecute the Let's Go Pats person. I think you got it in the bag. You know how much money they paid for that Tom Brady jersey? People like that don't commit crimes. <laughs> I thought it was very smart to opt for no jury. I also thought it was very smart to come straight out there and be like, she's garbage. I think her, but she didn't do anything illegal. I think her lawyer saw what she did with her eyebrows and was like, uh, "We're gonna have to do a do a bench trial." <laughs> now you explain to me that kids have been doing this with their eyebrows. It's just a thing. I mean, everyone does it. It thick, dark eyebrows are a thing now. Now but, hers looked weird, and she's blonde, and her eyebrows were black. That's a little bizarre. But typically, you do your eyebrows a little bit darker than your hair. I mean, I have an eyebrow pencil that on the one day a month I wear makeup, I do do my eyebrows, but I don't draw them in. But I see the younger girls. You're not wearing makeup right now? Bobby. You're so naturally pretty. (laughs) (laughs) You try to make out with me for three hours. Oh, I can't wait till my mouth is so tired. Oh, <laughs> you have stubble. Yeah. Like that would st- hurt. I, w- I would have been so proud of this stubble at 16. <laughs> yeah, but your little girlfriend would have gone upstairs to say goodnight to you and her whole face would have been red. Yeah, that probably was the case sometimes. Her eyebrows are not on fleek. Uh, this style may work on many women, maybe more darker complected women. It's Harder. a very thick blocked eyebrow. She obviously... People do that and they think they look like Brooke Shields. Oh, right, do you know right. what I mean? That's sure. what everyone wants to look like is Brooke Shields in the 80s. Does Michelle Carter even know who the fuck Brooke Shields is? No, but that's the look that's come back around. Oh. And a lot of women my age can't achieve a very thick eyebrow without a pencil or something. Because in the 90s, we literally plucked every eyebrow out of our head. Right. And had pencil thin eyebrows like we thought it was the 20s. Also, when we when we start to see indictments come around, mm. seems like she's kind of maybe like a normal weight, maybe a little thick, but not too much. And by the time the trial's going, it appears that she's lost a lot of weight. And it does acknowledge that there was maybe due to her personal issues that she might have had an eating disorder. I don't think she ever looked thick. She looked more full. Yeah, she looks healthy. There's the pictures of her when she's younger also. So by trial, she's 20. When you see some of these photos of them, when they were her around the time it was happening, she she did look, she had little baby cheeks. That's what I meant. Yeah. 
thick. Thick was the wrong word. Yeah. I think her issues stemmed from before all that started. I mean, her issues definitely stemmed from before all that started. I mean, when she starts this trial, she's very, very She thick. is. She's... And you can tell this is, like, rapid. Like, things are moving very quickly in terms of that, you know? Yeah, I'm sure... I'm sure after all this trial stuff started, any issues that she had just magnified. Now, in any true crime-ish documentary or documentary series, you always start off with someone saying about how this person who maybe did a very bad thing was such a pleasant and nice, polite person in the oh, town. Oh, yeah. And then like 45 minutes later, you get all these examples of why maybe they weren't. Mm-hmm. But they asked the one guy who... I don't know, gets to ring the bell at the firehouse and and he and they're like, Well, I thought she was great. Yeah, that they had a psychiatrist psychologist, I believe. Yeah. Psychiatrist, psychologist, psychologist, I think. Talking Psychologi- about psychiatrist. <laughs> everything that he had learned about her in that town and what people thought about her, but then reading the text, it's like a completely different person. The prosecution comes in and basically starts going through who Michelle was as a person. Michelle was a very lonely person without any friends in her high school. They interview four different girls from her high school asking, you know, did she text you all the time? Did you ever actually hang out with her? What did you really think about her? And everybody was like, I mean, we talked, but eh. Maybe it's just that teenager tone, but it felt like they were all like, "Uh, I'm not her friend. No way. Well, and especially now. And we don't. You know, there's probably a part of them that's like a little bit. And we get one where a text exchange, because she's always asking people to hang out, mm-hmm. constantly doing that. And when you go through this, at first, when you see the text between her and Conrad, it's like, is this a weird fucking fetish? Like, what the fuck's going on? But then it kind of shifts to this point where, because she's so desperate for attention and wants to talk to people, is trying to get these other girls to hang out. And some are nicer to her than others, but everyone's like still a little turned off by her desperation. But with Conrad, it's just like, did she want to have a boyfriend who committed suicide? Was that the, the the toy that she wanted in her pocket to help lubricate social situations? Pity will make me some friends. Well, and I think she obviously knew him for two years. This was going on for two years. They exchanged thousands of text messages. But they start talking about how when it gets to the end of the year, of the end of this school year, junior year, I think, for her, so she must have been 17. All these people didn't make plans with her for the summer. She couldn't secure anything. She was going to be all alone. And so she turned towards convincing Conrad to go ahead and kill himself. And some, yeah. That's some weird summer plans. There's a moment where they show a text. This This is like the most damning to me is... Two days before he committed suicide, she sends a text to someone and says, oh, he's missing. I don't know what has happened. And all of a sudden, all the girls are like, oh, my God, it's okay. Don't worry yet. I'm sure they'll find him. He would tell you if he wasn't coming back. Like, yeah. and, and everyone's, like, comforting her because now she's having a tragedy. Yeah, a trial run of a tragedy. A trial run of a tragedy. Remember, they're not in the same town. Uh, all her friends are in Plainfield. Yeah, Plainfield. And it is Plainville, not Fair 
the fuck? Fair fuck. So there's just three. I don't know what the other town is. And Taunton. Taunton lies within 20 miles of deep water ports and has rail connections to the main Conrail line in southeastern Massachusetts. Taunton city government consists of an elected mayor and a nine-member municipal council. Don't forget Taunton. Taunton public schools include 14 facilities, including a modern 130-acre campus high school with excellent athletic facilities. Also of interest is the Taunton Town Green, which is a gathering place for city and community events. Taunton is where the trial is. Taunton is a blend of both scenic and urban characteristics, and the city combines the luxury of open space and affordable housing with the amenities of excellent medical and educational facilities. We've actually probably driven through a lot of these areas. I was thinking about that. I was wondering. Yeah. Well, the day happens. It happens. He ki he kills himself. Yeah. And that night, she texts his sister. A lot. And says, have you talked to him? Does your mom know where your brother is? Asking all these very leading questions. Like, she can't wait for someone to find out. Now, whether that's because she's now freaked out and wants someone to find out, or whether she's now just turned to getting the attention of his family. Yeah, well, there she's got front row engagement here. She's like an important person in this scenario. Now. Well, yeah. Well, then they find him, and then she's going to his mom like, can I come to your house? Can I have some of his ashes? Yeah. She's asking all these like pretty inappropriate questions, I feel like, for someone that they didn't realize he was in a relationship with. But she comes to their house and talks to his mom to the point where his mom actually says to her, and I'm, the mom hated admitting that she said this, I'm glad that he had someone like you in his life because she played herself as I was his friend. I loved him. Conrad's parents were divorced. And I, was, I found myself wondering who had main custody. It didn't really I clarify. I think mom did. You think mom did? Because she says at one point that she wished she could have seen any signs that week. Yeah. And his sister also lived with her. So I think that that, that they were a family unit, the mom and the, him and his sister, at least. They talk about how Michelle was a cutter and stuff or the psychologist, how she had tendencies to cut, how she constantly was desperate to hang out with people and never really, she could get these school friendships. You know, we all had like many like in school friendships, but. But I'm, a lot of times, it was similar for me growing I had maybe one person who I'd see very consistently outside of school. And everyone else is just kind of like you'd just see them at school and then you'd never see them. Mm -hmm. But they don't read any of these texts aloud. I kind of wanted to for clip fun purposes. But they do have Samantha read a text. Yeah, I have school friends that all say they love me, but that doesn't mean shit when no one ever asks to hang out with me. No one ever calls me or texts me. It's always me that has to do it. So when someone actually makes an effort to talk to me and hang out and stuff, it makes me so happy and I actually feel important, like I'm worth something. They were talking about how her ploys for how her messages were always long. I kind of relate to well, this. My messages can sometimes get real long. And what would you generally describe sometimes to be the length of the defendant's text messages to you? Very lengthy. When someone doesn't respond to you and in your mind you work up that they hate you, that they're mad at you, they don't want to be your friend anymore. And then she would go on these like rants 
other times when the defendant would text you and you would take a while to text back? Yes. And would she sometimes, the defendant, react to that? Yes. And what, how would her reaction be if you took a long time to respond to her? She would often repeatedly, repeatedly texted me until I responded. Yeah. Well, not rants. They were like begging, pleading, yeah. please be my friend. It was interesting to listen to Samantha read it out loud. That happened with you like you made me feel important. Like when I look back on my high school career, I'm honored to say that I got the opportunity to be friends with Sam Boardman. I push people away. I text them too much or try talking to them too much and they leave. Every single one. And then I'm left crying in bed at night because I have no one, no friends, barely a family. Like they don't even like me half the time. I had a... Ferret? No. Yeah, no. I never had a ferret. I had like a friend breakup my freshman year of high school. And the person who had been my friend turned into my bully. And I had no other friends. Did you try being cooler? What? Did you try being cooler? Maybe you just cool. weren't cool. I wasn't cool. Well, maybe you deserved it. Anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, we've all moved on. Look, we've done so well for ourselves now. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're just looking at me like, oh my God. It's cool. It's cool. So yeah, basically... Once Michelle has a dead boyfriend, she has a lot of friends. And they actually asked one of the girls, I think it was Olivia or Lexi. Lexi, I think. Lexi seemed sort of really noncommittal the entire time. Yeah, yeah. Like and they said to her, you know, he passed away on the 12th. She told her on the 12th. On the 13th, Michelle texts her and says, do you want to come over and distract me? And Lexi goes to her house and the prosecutor's like would you have done that any other time and she was like well i would do that for any friend who no she goes no 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 would you do that for her in any other circumstance and she was like no that seemed like a weird question to it me. was a weird question because she this is someone's boyfriend died that's like why she did it yeah like you don't have a circumstance like what other circumstances that to compare to i don't i didn't understand that line of thinking i didn't understand why it mattered no, but I guess it was just basically saying, I think that what she was trying to get across was you would have never gone to her house any other time. To play Sega Genesis. Never. But if you're too busy for Sega, that's fine. But, you know, you, so you prioritize people who maybe have a, a, had a tragedy in their life. Yes. And so then they start showing how she posts all over her Facebook and yeah. all over her Twitter, how much she misses him, photos of him. She starts a thing called Homers for Conrad to raise money for mental health. Yeah, but she does it in Plainville. Her hometown. Yeah. She does this thing that people do that I think is strange where when they reply to what people are saying, even though there's no jokes or anything going on, she types ha-ha at the end of every message. I find it very weird that people do that. It's the same thing as a smiley face. A lot of people do it. I know. Well, it's replaced uh -huh. LOL, too. It's like after everything we say, say ha-ha at the end of it. That's essentially like how it reads. Uh -huh. Yeah. Ha-ha. Yeah. Okay. But I don't do that. Much. But yeah, they had they held this thing in her town. And people on Facebook 
that knew him and were from that town. I was like, why don't you have it in the town where everyone knew him? Yeah, and she was like, because this is where I'm from. <laughs> and this is where it's going to be. <laughs> and then this guy said, well, but her his friends and family are in this other town. She's like, I didn't know how to make it happen there, huh? And then she goes, are you trying to take credit for my idea? Which didn't seem like anyone was trying to do that, huh? But the point is she needs all the credit for everything because she needs everyone to know that it's her. Uh-huh. And the photos that day, she just looks so happy. Yeah, people are like all over her. She takes a picture in the middle of the whole team because they, I guess they all hit homers for Conrad that day. Never said how much money was raised. Nope, didn't. His mom was there and she was like, yeah, everybody was, it was all his people. She was, or maybe it was one of the girls that said that. She was the belle of the ball. There were a lot of ladies with very dark hair in this movie that were not the main girl. Sure. So. My favorite part in all of part one. You know where I'm going, right? They go to the Kmart parking lot because, you know, sometimes a trial will travel to a location. So the trial has traveled. And obviously Aaron Lee Carr spotted someone that she wanted to talk to. I've never met the girl, but I've seen pictures of her. She just has that look that I remember. But I see that look and it's like, you little snot, how could you do that to a human being? You 90210 piece of crap, uh, you know? This is pure Massachusetts right here. Mm-hmm. This lady's like, yeah, he died right here, right where I parked. I'm telling you, if I was on the jury, I'd say, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Your parents aren't going to miss you if you're in Framingham for the next 30 years. See you later. Bye. I, I swear to God, you know, to me, this is evil. This is evil. And um, where does evil come from? I don't know. If you ever drive around Massachusetts in the hometown of anybody from eastern Massachusetts who is middle-aged and up, one of their favorite things to do is point out every place in which people die. You don't have to be in Massachusetts. You just have to be with a person from Massachusetts. Yeah, and they'll be like... Because we've gotten the, the death tour of Florida, too. Yeah, they've just something about <laughs> el- older folks from Massachusetts. They love talking about places where people died, terrible deaths. They'll go visit them, and they'll tell these stories over and over and Yeah, they'll be like, we're going to drive over here and show you... Let me drive over this way and show you. That Burger King right there. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking, like, what? Was this last summer? 16 years ago. <laughs> I know normally we drive that way, but we're going to turn down here so I can show you where that girl was found. <laughs> yes. I swear to God those words were spoken. <laughs> A part of me loves it. Yeah. And another part of me is like, we sure do talk about death a lot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Anyway, but this lady, <laughs> this lady... I just wanted to go eat, you know, crab, eat lobster with this lady. And have a little her clam t- chowder. And to have her tell me all about uh, that Kmart parking lot. And Is it Manhattan clam chowder you have to have there? The red kind? No, Manhattan, you'd have it in Manhattan. Well, I thought I had red clam chowder. In- they does probably not matter right they now. Were, no, it doesn't. But they were probably like <laughs> shitting on you somewhere. No, then I didn't. No, you got the cream, the the white. I got chowder. whatever I was supposed the white to get. Manhattan, I'm sorry, Massachusetts. Manhattan clam chowder, chowder, pardon me, chowder, is uh, <laughs> tomato based. 
It's a tomato based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had it, but I think only from a can. Yeah, you. I think you actually prefer the tomato base, right? Yeah. I don't know if you get a real good white chowder though. It's really good. I think I got confused because you have it in Mass, but you also have it in like San Francisco. San Francisco, they do a good <laughs> chow- they do a good chowder over there. Yeah, on the pia. Wicked pizza. <laughs> Are we done? I think we're done. I didn't take any more notes after this because it was just more of the text messages. This is where, after this actually, where Sam reads the really long text. They were basically just making the argument that she was a disturbed girl who herself was depressed, had an eating disorder, cut herself. That was actually one of the ways that she would reach out, I believe, to Sam was that someone she turned to when she was having those those moments. And... You know, she said in the text that she felt like she didn't even have any family, that her family didn't like her. She felt completely alone is what they were trying to posit. But then also that when she was talking to Conrad, what made it even worse was that between telling him that he should kill himself, she was telling him how much she loved him. Yeah. So it's crossing wires. And the prosecution also points out that she knows how he feels to an extent in mm-hmm. terms of sheer loneliness. And the so way. it's more fucked up. Yeah. I They didn't say this, but I almost wonder if there's a living vicariously aspect to this. I think so. Like she wanted to kill herself too, but she didn't have the guts to do it. So she wanted him to. His life will give her the fuel and then she can go and every five minutes say, I had a boyfriend who committed suicide. Right. And so after this prosecution argument, the judge denies the defense request for dismissal and says, oh, no, now you got to defend this girl. Yeah. And that's where this episode ends. And the second half, I'm sure, will be called The Defense. Let's get defensive, shall we? But whether on the rose of sheer perfection, a freckle on the nose of life's complexion, the cinder or the shiny apple of its eye. I gotta fly once, I gotta try once, only can die once, right, sir? Oh, life is juicy, juicy, and you see, I gotta have my bite, sir. Get ready for me, love, cause I'm a comma. I simply gotta march my heart to drama. Don't bring her on a cloud to rain on my... The Defense. Another side to the story. And I gotta say, I feel kind of convinced that perhaps she doesn't belong in prison. I'm gonna say that up top. I mean, where maybe she needs to go might not be much better or more fun. I think that she needs help. And a lot of it. There's a lot to unpack. But I don't know that prison is the right place for her. Yeah, I would I would agree with that statement. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. We breezed through part one because it was like the the surface amount, the most surface amount that most of us knew. Part one was like, hey, remember when this happened? We get a picture of Conrad all beat up. Mm -hmm. And in part one, we talk to his dad. There's no hint or sign of... There's just a whole whole other dimension is opened into this whole thing. Yeah, in the first part, his dad seemed 
sweet, if not someone who maybe didn't know his son that well. And then it's revealed that there was a domestic violence situation where dad like beat his ass enough to where he was marked all over his face. Yeah, and the cops were called and the dad actually got arrested. The dad's explanation. Yeah, you know, you think at first it's kind of embarrassing, but you know what, it doesn't really matter. I know what happened that night with my son and I know like I was being a parent and I know things got out of control and we both fought each other. And um, and I'd do it again, just, just like that. And this is used as a contributor to a lot of issues that Conrad was having at the time to show that Michelle is not the singular factor that's making his life shitty. Mm -hmm. And they talk to the dad and the dad's like, you see, you know, like my father always said, if you ever take a swing at me, you're going to, uh, you're going to get it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're going to make sure you don't do that ever again. And I just felt like I had to do the same thing. Conrad swung on him, essentially, and that he beat his ass. That's what dad admitted. Yeah. And he said he wouldn't do it any differently now. Yeah. Which is very interesting when you think about it, because a lot of times parents would really beat themselves up for any little thing like that, that they could point back to trying to figure out why or a lot of people blame themselves when people close to them mm. kill themselves, not realizing that it really doesn't usually have anything to do with the people around them. But especially a situation like that. Don't trust anyone with no regrets. Yeah. I Real mean, people have regrets. <laughs> That was weird. That struck <laughs> me was. as very weird. Also, we find out in this, they start talking about the different medications that actually both kids were on. Conrad was on psychiatric drugs, and so was Michelle. Yeah. And part of the reason that Conrad was on them is because Conrad tried to kill himself four times. Now, when his mother was talking about the fact that he had tried to kill himself in the worst time when he actually was put into the hospital because he overdosed on like aspirin or something. Yeah. She was talking about how she, he promised her he'd never do it again. And how she told him that if he ever, it would make her want to die too. Yeah. Which guilt is great for making someone feel better. <laughs> but also she said in the first half that she had no idea he had problems. And then in the second half, when she's saying that, I'm not, I'm not blaming his parents. No, no. At all in this situation. I'm not blaming this woman. I think she tried her damnedest as a single mom and the relationship with the dad was not good and it was a messy divorce, but I'm not blaming her. I'm, it's just a little in, inconsistent. Yeah. And maybe it's easier for her as it would be for a lot of people to say, I didn't know. It just seems like the picture they're painting is sunnier than what was going on leading years leading up to this incident. Yeah, and then they're really sort of getting into some of that stuff on this side. And plenty of rel family, plenty of parents would do or would be similar. I know my a lot of my family uh, where I where I grew up would probably act very similarly. So we get the defensive angle of this, which delves not only not only into deep angles of what Conrad was going through, separate from Michelle but also the psychological things that Michelle was going through. And we didn't, I don't know if we mentioned him, mentioned him in part one. Uh, there's a, there's a journalist who wrote an article for Esquire. Sorry, buddy. I, I think we mentioned him, but yeah, I just called him Esquire. He provides, he provides deeper layers into 
the minds and mentalities on the timelines of what Michelle was going through. And you really get the vibe that he is actually very sympathetic. Yeah, he actually looked really upset at one point. I feel as though he's really gotten ingrained in this story over the years. Everyone, with the exception of the prosecution, because it's their job and duty to put her in prison, I suppose. Um, But everyone that you talk to, from the arresting detectives to the reporter to the defense attorney, of course... When they delve deep into this shit, mm-hmm. things become very complicated. Yeah, this Dr. Peter Bregan, we hear from a lot in this one. He takes the stand in part two. Yeah, he takes the stand in part two. Some of the things they said early on were that, you know, they both were dealing with issues. He had attempted suicide at least four times. At least four times. He had talked to her about that. Their conversations got pretty dark sometimes. He would talk about seeing the devil and she would say she had seen the devil too. And they talked about how the devil brought them together and they were going to go to hell together. That's just a cool metal album right there. Going to hell together? Yeah. Going to hell together. This is the first part, and I know you expressed towards the end that this maybe wasn't super clear, so I don't know if we made this clear in the first half. I don't think I understood it until the second half. That they show the text message where she was admitting to her part in the day. Yes. Right? She's telling her her friend Sam. Yeah. And Sam is the girl who, one of the girls she wanted to be good friends with, who never really reciprocated her outside of school friendship, but did text her back. Yeah. And she texts Sam about how she could have prevented it from happening how he got out of the car and she told him, get back in the fucking car. Yeah. That is the confession, quote unquote, that the prosecution relies really heavily on is this get back in the car. We don't actually have proof that she said that. Yeah, that's, I I misunderstood that too. Uh, I guess I maybe missed it on the way, but I would assume the whole time that she either called him and told him which there'd be no evidence of that, truly, or that she texted him. Those words get back in the truck. But the only confession she made regarding that specific, and this hinges on that, is that she just sent it to her friend. And she also sent a lot of things to her friend, right? Yeah. Doc, uh, I know we're skipping around a lot, but Bregan actually kind of talks about at the end that the prosecution's whole case stemmed on the fact that she was a liar. And then they're going to believe this thing she told a friend that she was trying to get attention from. It's just really hard to believe. Spoiler alert, she never takes the stand. She never takes the stand. She never takes the stand. So we don't get to hear from her any sort of defense on these things. This is when they start talking about how she tells everybody all these different things, even about him. And about how, you know, we already know that she tested out her friends to see how they would respond if he died before he died. She was always kind of trying to get reactions from people. Yeah. And so that's a lie right there. Two days before her death. I mean, that's not necessarily evidence that she did it. It's Mm -hmm. just an evidence of another lie. Because anything could have happened, maybe. Mom come home at a certain point. Things change, you know. There's this whole thing the doctor poses that the suicide talk started with Conrad. Not with her. Yeah. 
and that for years she was trying to talk Conrad out of killing himself. Or understanding that that's the space he was in, but still trying to love him and talking about, you know, when we get married one day, I want you to be the father of my children. Someday we'll have sex. Like, they had these kind of conversations. Yeah. But at the same time, he was sometimes mean to her. Yeah, he could. He had a little bit of a cruel streak. They played little flirty games together a lot. There were all sorts of bits of their relationship. Like, they had an intimacy, even though they didn't see each other. Yeah. In person. It was almost as though she fed off of him. She was the loving, supportive one while he was the brooding, in pain one. Well, the doctor notes changes. Yes. Incurring within her based on a timeline, also based around her switching from one psychiatric medication to another. Yeah, and then she starts, instead of talking about them having things in common and seeing the devil, she starts talking about Jesus. Yeah. And how if he was to die and go to heaven, he would be safe. The doctor is arguing that she is experiencing a psychosis right now. So to try to rationalize what she's doing, because there is evidence that she goes from supportive in one way to like probably thinking that she's actually doing the right thing. Yeah, he called it involuntary intoxication. What is a involuntary intoxication? Well, by definition, it's an intoxication, which means that the neurochemistry of the brain has been disrupted and that this intoxication is observable through thoughts, behaviors, activities. They involve, in general, things like impulsivity, impaired judgment, now, we speak briefly to another psychologist. Involuntary intoxication is a diagnosis that I never use and that most of the colleagues that I know don't use, but that is used in forensic psychiatry. So without, you know, without uh, any consensus by our profession that it's even real. In some children and adolescents taking antidepressants, it can be disinhibiting. I wouldn't call it drastic, you know, but uh, if you become manic when you're on antidepressant, that's pretty drastic, you know, and that happens in a very small proportion of cases. She was sort of saying that this idea of involuntary intoxication, I guess being something that could just happen to anybody, is not really huh. a thing. That's what I understood her to say. What, she did sort of also acknowledge, though, in this case with this girl, obviously something went wrong. The prosecution pushes back on the doctor. It seems like they do a pretty good job, but he just kind of stands his ground. He's like, everything you're saying, I feel like just clarifies exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, every other lie you point out or thing that contradicts is one more crazy thing she did. And I totally get that. There's also the idea that they talk about how he would tell her every night he was going to kill himself. So then she would freak out and the next day he would not be dead. Yeah. And this happened a lot. And so... If it was driving her crazy and she's manic and she doesn't know whether he's going to kill himself or not, the idea is that she was in such a worked up state that she felt like, I just need to help him get this over with yeah. so that it ends and so that it stops. There's a little bit of weird imagery in this one. A lot of, I mean, a lot of this works as well as the first half, but it seemed like there was some imagery that I was like, oh, come on. Yeah, there's a part where they talk about the way that Michelle tried to kill herself was by hanging herself. And they actually show a tied rope on a chair. I, my brain was almost convinced that that was the, the rope, like picture evidence. Or something. I thought that for a second. And then 
I thought, surely not. I mean, it was a photo, so I guess it's feasible that she could have taken that photo. That rope was made from some pretty thin twine. Yeah. So. I don't know. And then there was this Barbie doll, and there was just different, like, makeup stuff that was making you think it was her room, but you know it wasn't because she and her family declined talking. Let's forever stop putting, like, baby dolls in, like, dramatic documentaries. Amen. Can we please just stop? I'll stop. Uh, if you stop, I can I'll promise stop. you that I will never do it. I got a closet full of naked baby dolls. <laughs> oh God! I'm throwing what? them the fuck out. This is the first time you're hearing about this. What? I've been telling you not to go through that closet, and I appreciate it. It's full of naked baby dolls, but don't worry, I'm throwing them all out because okay. they're they're contrived, and I'm tired of seeing them. Okay. I'm gonna need to borrow a truck. Okay. So there's other things that Michelle is associating things in her life. This is fascinating. You've seen every episode of the show Glee, right? I have. Because you're a fucking dork. I'm a dork. I will not talk about Glee too much except to say that I'm a completist sometimes. And if I get really far in, I feel like I have to keep going. There was a point where I really hated that I was still watching it, but I kept watching it. But I've seen every episode of Glee. Yeah, every time you and Brian are watching that show and I'd walk in or or time. It's been on actually a while. so It's been over for a while. Years. Too. So I feel like whenever I'd randomly walk into the room, they're either singing a Queen song or yeah. they're singing Don't Journey. Stop Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. Have they sung that song 50 fucking times in like 10 seasons on that show? Yeah. And Leah Michelle always sings uh, Don't Rain on My Parade. Is that the one? The one where she says butter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Anyway. It's like they're just singing the same 10 songs over and over again. So much. We find out that Michelle was obsessed with Glee. And so the idea is, which 100% makes sense to me, this whole relationship was completely different in her head than it actually was Hmm. to him or in reality. They point out that as far as like the angle of romance here, a lot of things were pushed more on Michelle's side. I don't know. It did seem like Conrad did like her and connected with her. But man, when I was like 16, when I'm driving, in our age, right? Mm-hmm. And it may not be fair to compare these kids. This seems like a very exceptional case, but but I think there is a similarity here with other people of their generation in the sense that when we turned six, when we were of driving age, we got access to a vehicle. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get the fuck out of the house as yes. much as we possibly could. Yes. We wanted to make new friends because it was like a whole new universe that opened up to us. But it seems like there's a lot of kids that are content to just be on the computer. Or stare at their phone and maybe not. Would it have been that much trouble to go an hour to see each other and to plot in these ways? It shouldn't have been. And they talked about it, apparently. But it was always sort of non-committal. Yeah. It just seems so strange. Like, why not? Honestly, the text messages that they gave as examples for these failed meetups remind me of texts I've sort of sent when I really didn't want to do something. Yeah. You know, like that whole... Oh, are we still supposed to get together later? Like, I I probably just wouldn't text you if I didn't want to hang out with you. Not to be mean, just I would just let that go. People who are listening to this know you, and they're thinking about any time that you've texted that to them. That's what I'm saying. Like, I actually don't think I have texted that. Okay. Because I think I would just ignore it. But it's really noncommittal to say, for someone to say hey, are we hanging out? And then you say, oh, well, you didn't mention it, so I didn't 
plan to. God, I'm already falling asleep just thinking about that text exchange. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just being like, I'd just rather go. Boarsville. Yeah. But he started talking about Glee. We have to explain about Glee. So she was obsessed with Glee. She was mostly obsessed with Leah Michelle. Right. So for anyone who does not know, and you may not know this for sure, um, Leah Michelle was the main girl in Glee. She couldn't stop believing. Corey Monteith, I think that's how you say it, was the main guy. They yeah. were the two. They were the ones. They were the couple. They were the couple in the show, but they were also a couple in real life. So there were these lines blurred with their relationship. And yeah, he overdosed in a hotel. And then also on the show, the character died. Mm. And so there was this that had to be so reality trippy, man. happening. That also was in the show and these people really did have a relationship in their actual life and also in the show. And so... She was obsessed with Leah, obsessed with Leah, maybe romantically in a way, like in a maybe, crush way. yeah. And sometimes texts that she would send to other people mimicked or twit, tweets, twits, I sound like twit. ancient... Some of the tweets she would send. <laughs> some of the tweets she would send. It would, would be the exact words. Yeah, the same words that dialogue from the show Glee. And not always just from the show, sometimes from interviews that Leah Michelle did later about her dead boyfriend. I literally lived every day of my life feeling like the luckiest girl in the whole world. I just I just thought he was the greatest man. This is weird. This is really weird. He's following like every step of the way. So crazy. Conrad died like pretty much exactly a year year after after. this gentleman had passed away. They also kind of backtrack at this point and tell us about Alice. Yeah, interesting. Alice was, was it soccer? I don't know, softball. There was a sports team they were on together. And Michelle had feelings for Alice. They hung out a lot. They would hang out kind of separate from everybody else. And evidence and text, which seemed very impassioned towards Alice. Well, she was telling someone else about her relationship with Alice. Yeah, that's what I'm but, talking yeah, about. Yeah, but not with Alice. So, because that gets into the whole, like, Alice say this story ain't real either. That they had this intimate relationship with yeah. each other. But yeah, she tells, I think, Olivia or Lexi, one of the other girls she tried to be friends with, about how she and Alice had this special relationship and she loved her. And maybe she was even bi, but she doesn't know because she's never had a relationship like that before. Yeah. And and I think she probably was. And at some point, Alice ghosted her, blanked her, basically. Yeah, and that was around the same time that she first met Conrad. Yeah. So she sort of replaced, I mean, that's a shitty way to say it, but... She didn't have this other person she was giving all of her attention to. So then she met Conrad and he got all of her attention. These emotional encounters are crossing over. Mm-hmm. She's revealing to other people how that she does care about Conrad, but she cannot stop thinking about Alice. It's like permeated everything about her. Yeah. And apparently that same summer where she's at the the camp and she's talking to him and the summer that he dies... She was really bad for Alice again. Yeah. Obsessed again about the idea of this girl that she lost. And that also kind of feeds into the switch in behavior that the doctor was talking about. Because if she'd been, I don't know, over it or it hadn't been front of mind, all of a sudden she's obsessing over everything. So she's obsessing over this person, Alice. She's obsessing over Conrad killing himself. She's 
has an eating disorder. You know, she was a mess. This revelation regarding Alice is brought up by the Esquire reporter. And he points out that he went to go talk to Alice and her mother yeah. for the story. And they met up with him. But a lot of the narrative was that Alice said that nothing physical ever happened between them. I think there is no evidence that that's the case. So in terms of assuming that there was, we really don't know. She I said mean, nothing physical or romantic. It probably She probably came on very strong and Alice had pushed back and, her, and talked to her mom about it. And her mom's like, oh, she's weird. She's weird. Yeah. And like, there you go. There's no more Michelle. That's probably how it probably went. I think he used the word they thought she was a sociopath. Yeah. But they, but he's interviewing them post Conrad's death. Exactly. Which can spin things. So that's all they wanted to talk about to him. And the result of that is, in their mind, it was like, the way he's describing it is like, they're really trying to convince him like, oh no, she could do this. She's fully, fully capable of this. We don't have anything to do with her because she's this crazy girl. And he's like... In that moment, I felt a sympathy for how alone she was. Aaron Lee Carr tried to get them for the documentary to Alice and her mom, and they wouldn't. Yeah. But their statement was just nothing physical or romantic about the relationship. Which isn't truly the question, is it? Right? Is that really even the question? It seems no. like they're so quick to push back on that. Yeah, they're basically like... I don't know. The first thing I thought was maybe there was something physical or romantic at some point. Maybe there was mm. something flirty, but maybe that wasn't okay for their daughter to be gay. Yeah. Or whatever. There's been so many times and so many stories I've heard before of two little girls who were best friends who are forbade. Forbade? They forbade. are forbade. <laughs> who are forbidden to see each other anymore because one of the parents freaks out about the relationship. Wow. It happens. And then it can lead to very like dire consequences because then you think what you're doing is wrong or bad or the other person feels rejected and has never explained why. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but it happens. Not like it's a fucked home, up situation. Not going to come home pregnant. As a parent, I would see that as a plus. <laughs> but I'm not But one. what does Jesus think? Oh, Jesus. I forget, I forget about that. Yeah, we got to remember Jesus lives in Massachusetts. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> His throne's up there. <laughs> okay, so closing arguments. You would figure Jesus would live kind of closer <laughs> to where we are, but that's a big shock. People don't realize that. Jesus actually lives in Massachusetts. And he vacations in Florida. Yeah. He's <laughs> in like a facility under Fenway Park. <laughs> he definitely vacations in Florida, yeah. Because he lives in Massachusetts, so he's got a vacation in Florida. Exactly. Yeah, dude. Yeah. It's wicked. <laughs> <laughs> wicked pizza. <laughs> wicked with my accent. Hey, wicked pisser, y'all. <laughs> Go park the car <laughs> in the Boston yard. Okay, so closing arguments. Yeah. Do you have anything before closing arguments you want to add? No. I think that's about it. It's a lot, though. It feels really heavy. The prosecution thinks that she caused him to kill himself. If she had not told him to get back in that car... Instead, she should have called the police. She should have called his parents. She should have told him not to get in the car. That when she told him to get back into the car, that is when she became liable for his death. Yeah. The judge acknowledges that it's all Conrad, but it's that moment he cites. So then the verdict, he takes two days. Yes, verdict. And he comes back for the verdict after he talked to the morals lady. 
Oh, the morals lady. <laughs> another another good Eastern Massachusetts citizen weighing in their two cents. This world is sick today, in my opinion. No one has any morals, lack of character. Uh, I just find it I just find it very troubling today. Because the right thing to do would have been for her to go get him help. He wanted to get out of the car, I believe. He did get out. She told him to get back in, quote unquote, and do it. I'm sorry, but she she deserves manslaughter. Absolutely. So obviously the defense was like, you shouldn't convict her of anything because she didn't do anything against the law. She just talked to him, yeah. basically. So the judge comes back and he says, okay, I'm breaking this down into three three periods of time. The first being from when they started texting to the day of July 12th. The second being from when he got in the car to when he got out of the car. And then the third being from when she told him to get back into the car. So like you were just saying, the judge totally said. Conrad is, is of his own facilities up until he gets out of the truck. And she supposedly, I mean, this is a charge. We say supposedly. Mm -hmm. Conrad or Allegedly. Michelle says, get back in the truck. That's full of carbon monoxide. Mm -hmm. And that's when Conrad dies. That's what he's hinging on. But like we said before. The only evidence specifically that she ever told him to go back inside the truck is when he, she sent a text to Sam after he had died. They also take a moment here to talk about other texts that she sent to people. She claimed that he raped her. But on a different text, she claimed they had sex and then said they'd never had sex. They'd only gone to third. And and, and it's funny because the friends that she's texting, for, they're only text friends, apparently. They never hang yeah, out. No, they don't hang out. Remind. It's so weird. It's a completely, it's a relationship in little digital word bubbles. Yep. But none of the friends, whenever she says any of this shit, believe her. Because this is probably a part of her personality that pushes a lot of people away. We've probably all known people who, not just people that lie, but just lie about randomly so specific things. Yeah. To the point where it doesn't seem like it makes sense or even matters why anyone would lie about that. But it's like adding another coat of paint onto something that already looks nice it's kind of weird i had a friend like that for a couple of years and it was like you said lies that didn't need to be told there was no sort of end game that was apparent or made any difference but it was just could you get away with it would they believe you yeah that's I've, how it felt i've dated people like this i'll be honest but uh no names but but that's the thing so in my mind Based upon the fact that she's made shit up, and I don't believe that Conrad, they they barely ever even saw each other. I don't believe Conrad ever forced himself on her. There's no... I don't know that they would have had the opportunity. Yeah, there's no proclamation by any side that they actually ever got together and had sex or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Or that even that this was a known and open relationship and that Michelle maybe only told a couple of other girlfriends of that about Conrad, period. No yeah. one seemed to know that they were together. Yeah, it, it's interesting, too, because I just had the thought while you were talking. I didn't realize this until now. It's almost like she was testing out different scenarios yeah. to what was going to get the attention. Now, again, I think she was I think she had problems. I don't think that she was completely malicious in anything that she did here completely. I think she should have known better and she shouldn't have done what she did. And it was wrong. But I also think that how she got to that point is not is not straight. It's not a straight line. But 
she tested out, well, what if I say I'm having sex with my boyfriend? Does that make me cool? Yeah. Okay, they don't believe me. Well, we went to third base at least. Okay, they don't believe that. Well, he forced himself on me. Okay, they don't believe that. Oh, oh he killed himself. And then I told him to get in the truck. Will they believe that? It's just, I don't know. It's so, I don't know, but that's the whole point is making you, it put the doubt in. If, I don't know. If you put of all of what we're, what we're have examples of all on a line, no one is refuting even her friends in those moments that these are lies. Yeah. But we accept that this one thing that she said to her friend, I told him to get back in the fucking truck. You got eight statements, all are lies, but one. Right. Like they talked about how the prosecution didn't make the point that, well, obviously Conrad raped her because she said that in a text. So then because you can't say that that's true. Yeah. Because then that's, this isn't a gives jur- her a reason like that makes him not an innocent person. This isn't a jury trial. No, but if I were on this jury, and I did get to see the whole breadth of these texts before and after, to see those compared in that way, and also if she wore a um, a Patriots jersey and a Red Sox cap, there's no way I would ever like you know, charge her guilty, to be completely honest. And just to finish my thought, because I feel like what I said sounded weird without finishing it, is that it's okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't saying that they hid the fact that he raped her. It's just that no one believed that that happened. But the fact that you don't believe that that was real, you can't point to something else and say it is. Yes. You can't say, you can't pick and choose which texts are real and which texts are not. And that's exactly what this judge did. And that's what people do with the Bible. You can't have it your own way. <laughs> right. You're picking and choosing. That was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. There's just no jokes joke. in here. This I I, it's not even a joke. I mean, I was like being. I thought you were just making a statement. I mean, I guess. I guess. We'll go over what jokes are. A <laughs> I think we have before. <laughs> it doesn't help. But like, yeah, there's no direct evidence that we see because there's no text. There mm-hmm. may be a phone call, but there is no known evidence that she said that directly to Connor. Yeah, they were there were two phone calls that she was on the phone with him for 40 minutes each that day. We don't know what was said. We yeah. can't know what was said. You got two sick kids texting fucked up shit at each other. Constantly. Constantly. And they're in a hole and they're and they're hitting they're hiding this specific relationship from the most important people that they see every day in their life. And he was making her swear not to tell anyone about the things he was saying and what he was planning to do. So she's convicted of involuntary manslaughter, right? Yeah, she's convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Basically what he says is that you have to serve, she gets 2.5 years, but as long as she, if she's appealing, then as long as it stays in Massachusetts, she doesn't have to... Basically, her sentence expires in 2012. Yeah. Or no, I'm sorry. That's in the past. 2022. So 2022, her 2.5 years, 15 of which she has to serve, expires. So if she doesn't serve her time before 2022, she won't have to serve her time. So immediately... If her appeals process takes that long. Right. And so immediately her lawyer gets up and says, okay, cool, cool. We're immediately going to start the appeals process, and we would like you now to officially put the stay on her sentence until her appeals process is complete. And so they do that. Year and a half later, the appeal is denied, though. 
so she does go to jail for her 15 months because it's obviously not 2022 yet. Yeah. She only, as far as it looked, went through one appeals process and they denied her and she went to jail. By now, she's had, well, I don't know. Is she still locked up right now? She was sentenced in 2017? She could be out. Well, she was sentenced in 2017, but it was a year and a half later before she went in. Okay. So So she's she's in now. Okay. I don't know when she's scheduled to get out. I don't think that Aaron Lee Carr put that at the end. I was curious. Yeah, me too. You could probably look it up real quick, but... Nah. Okay. (laughs) I'll look it up later. Yeah. She did get a short haircut at the end. The Rodham. Like she's grown up a little bit. I don't know what else to say. Kind of. She's still doing that same part. A year and a half later, she's going for that same hair part. Her eyebrows were less severe. That's right. They got more severe and then less severe. She looks a little I'm going to show you some photos later. Bobby was very confused by how thick this girl's eyebrows were drawn I know she's coloring them in, all right? I know, but you just seemed, it was sweet. It's hard not to get lost in those eyebrows. You're a little perplexed about why in the world someone would want to do that. There was, you know what I honestly thought? There was her sentencing, her eyebrows were particularly thick and dark. Yeah. And... Uh, not even. And I thought to myself, she's so tired and fucked up, she couldn't do her eyebrows right today. It's kind of like when you try to put on eyeliner and you can't and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. Like, to me, the way her eyebrows looked in her sentencing or in her, uh, when she was, not the sentencing, but the when she was getting the verdict, it looked as though she was not well. Yeah. You know, like well, she obviously truly was not handling it. I mean, a sociopath would have no feelings on that day and would look beautiful. Is she a sociopath though? No. I'm not convinced. No, no, I don't think she is. But there are people who threw that word around. Her looks don't really matter, but she is very striking looking in an odd way. Mm-hmm. So it's hard not to talk about it. Maybe get arrested by the fashion police, huh? Maybe that'll help you. <laughs> she looked like a rich girl. Yeah, but she's not, right? I mean, her family looked okay. They look, I mean, they maybe her like... Her grandparents are members of a country club. Oh, yeah. I guess you, you got to be rich. Yeah, that shit's I mean, expensive. More expensive than we want to fucking pay. Right. Angela, we don't rate documentary series in a star rating scale. Mm-mm. Or the Herzog rating scale. Technically, this is a series. Yes. They could have lumped it into one movie, but I guess they wanted to have a little fun. I think there's drama in doing... The prosecution and the defense. It makes sense. Yeah. I'm going to give this one through five Errol Morrises. Mm-hmm. You're going to give this one through five Errol Morrises. Mm-hmm. I'm going to crush them together for best out of ten Errol Morrises. I'll go first. We talked about some imagery we didn't care for, but that was kind of my only true complaint. The way it was all laid out and the way we really got into their relationship. And I kind of liked that, how there was two sides of the same coin kind of thing going on here. It really worked out. Is there manipulation in this documentary to particularly make me uh, feel some kind of sympathy for Michelle Carter? I mean, truthfully, I feel a great deal of sympathy for both of these mm-hmm. kids involved. Conrad as well. Obviously, he's gone through a lot. Yeah. He has severe family troubles that is a whole other, uh, could be a whole other chapter if you're just talking about Conrad alone as far as what he's been going through. Mm-hmm. These kids are shown to be over-medicated, regardless of what the result of how that is. It just it you can't deny that these there was just something mentally wrong with these kids. Mm-hmm. 
there's plenty of evidence in how they were wrapping up into things and how they were so wrapped up in each other. But, but goddamn, it's a good story. Erin Lee Carr, she knows a good story when she fucking sees Oh, yeah. Mommy, Dead, and Dearest. Mm-hmm. I was telling that story. I was so invested in that story. This one's pretty fucking good, too, in terms of, like, a, a classic case study. Was justice served? I know Conrad's family wouldn't think so. Yeah. But it seemed like, you know, we had a, a brief moment of clarity for the mother who seemed to understand that Michelle was sick, you know. Mm-hmm. There was that moment there. You could tell she's weighing a lot of guilt. She's not really vocalizing it that much, you know. And the dad himself, we saw him cry. The dad mm-hmm. who beat Conrad up pretty hardcore got locked up for it. I don't know. It's it's a sad story. Either way you slice it, it's just sad. Yeah. And it was also very well executed. And it was one of those, I felt like I knew most of the first part, right? And then the second part was like, this shit's even deeper than you realize. It kind of, there was a documentary that came out a long time ago. I think it's Hot Coffee about the woman who yes. sued McDonald's. It kind of had that vibe where like, okay, this happened. Now let's break this down even further. Did you know that hot coffee was like unbelievably hot? And then you see a picture of her fucking thighs and they're completely roasted. And you're like, oh my God. Which was crazy to me because I don't know if you did this, but we studied that case in high school Hmm. as part of like some like mini little bit of like law or ethics or something. I don't know what class it was. I truly don't. It might've been social studies, but there was this part where we were looking at different cases and stuff and sort of basically saying like, you know, in the workplace, is this ethical or not ethical? Like this lawsuit happened and this thing got decided and I don't know, but we talked about it, but it was very surface. But similarly, their reaction to that is like, why would you sue? Gosh, you poured coffee on yourself and you're going to sue. And there's something... And it's like this, too. I feel like a lot of people who see the surface stuff, who only read the Fox News or the CNN articles right. about it. Nancy Grace. The Nancy Graces of it all. They didn't get the nuance that Aaron Lee Carr provided us. She's getting good at this shit. Mm-hmm. Just keep the naked baby dolls out. Where I'll get rid of mine if you get rid of yours, Aaron. <laughs> okay? I give it 3.75 out of 5 Errol Morris's. Okay, okay. I thought it was very well done. I don't remember there being those weird video montages in the first half. I don't remember them. Definitely some weird stuff in the second half. Trying, I think, to show what her life might have been like or her room without having access to her. I think you just have to not do that. But other than that, again, like you said, that's really the only sort of complaint I have. I thought it was told very well. I thought doing the prosecution versus the defense was very smart. Prosecution and then defense because obviously the prosecution is the part that we knew because it's the part that they were feeding out to the world, what was in the media. In terms of the narrative, prosecution really owns it. Yeah, they really definitely do. And the fact that that was also how the trial actually went down. Is that always how it is? Always prosecution and then defense, right? Because you have to defend what you've been charged with. I mean, that's how trials work. Is that what you're, what are you asking? Okay, that was a dumb question. But yes, okay. that is what I was asking. It's always prosecution This first. is your first court case you've ever seen? <laughs> I'm so tired, Bobby. Okay, well, would, uh, how many uh, Errol Morrises do you give this? I am going to give it 4.25 Errol Morrises. Wow. Mm-hmm. I... 
Yeah. 4.25. We watched this over the span of two days, mm-hmm. watch and record. And I was very excited to watch start watching this. And after watching the first part, I was still excited to watch the second part. Yeah, me too. I really want to know what happened. Sometimes, even though we're liking a documentary, but we got to watch it. We got to sit through it. You know, we got to kind of, we've put ourselves in this situation. It's nobody's fault but ours. But but we were excited to get to this one. Yeah, definitely. You take my 3.75 and how much you give it? 4.25. That brings it to a total of 8 out of 10 Errol Morris's. For I Love You, Now Die! By Aaron Lee Carr. I think that's it for us, isn't it? Anything else you want to say before we go? No. I'm going to color in my eyebrows real dark. (laughs) I think I'd look good like that. (laughs) Keep on docking. We love you, Conrad. Oh, yes, we do. We love you, Conrad, and we'll be true. When you're not near us, we're blue. Oh, Conrad, we love you. Matapoiset. 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 How could you do that to a human being, you 90210 piece of crap? Uh, you know? Goodbye, Kmart. Sorry. The initial defense is that... You should start that sentence completely over. If you dance, I'll dance. And if you don't, I'll dance anyway. Give peace a chance. Let the fear you have fall 